Mavericks. The Movie Mavericks Podcast. Movie Mavericks, speaking of fucking long, uncut European cocks. The Movie Mavericks Podcast. Now for your hosts, Jason and Trevor. I can't wait. Hey now, everybody, welcome to a special episode of Movie Mavericks Podcast. Please do not fast forward the podcast. Fast forward eats the podcast. I'm Trevor Anderson. Since you have Jason Rugard, he will tell you what the hell's going on this episode. Talking about the 1991 modest box office hit, The Last Boy Scout, directed by Tony Scott, starring Bruce Willis, Damon Wayans, written by Shane Black. Going back 25 years to look at the release of this, some would say action class. Wow, this opening scene is is extremely iconic, I would say. Not from the fact that it has Billy Blanks uh, starring as <laughs> Billy Cole. Like the Tybo man before right. Tybo was out. We didn't know. Going back and looking at this, we're going to talk about uh, the troubled production of this film, which took me by surprise. I did not know that this was such a tumultuous shoot. You know, you look at something like this and you expect that everything, because uh, it works for you. I mean, it works for me from childhood up. You look at it now, it's a little more critical. I just didn't realize that it had such mm-hmm. problems. Did you know about this? I did not. To me, a lot of Tony Scott movies don't play very smoothly. Anyhow, they're very cut up. They're, they can be jarring story-wise. So this was always just kind of normal to me, you know, and, and it had a very... Tony's got look to it, so I just kind of went along with it. I, I, I don't know. Is it, or maybe just most Tony Scott movies just have problems when they shoot him. You know, <laughs> uh, he is at this point in his career coming to uh, Last Boy, Last Boy Scout. He is coming off of the box office failure of the Kevin Costner movie written by Quentin Tarantino there mm-hmm. uh, of Revenge, which is a, a really an underrated classic. I implore people that are listening to this to go back and look at that film. I think there's a lot of influence still of that. However, this was your pick to go back and look at. And are you happy we went and revisited this? Does it work for you still? Yeah, it still works for me. It's nice to, to visit Shane Black again, you know, 25 years ago and see right before he comes out with his next Private Eye movie, a Nice Guys. This is just definitely something that I think he excels at. You know, I like these worlds um, and he's got that kind of cynical, dark darkness, but still, you know, comedic and smart. This is a dark movie. Not a lot of movies have a sequence, even in jest, where the hero holds a gun to his daughter's head um, yeah. <laughs> to, to use a car for a getaway. I mean, as a throwaway. Um, like, no, so it's fun. That, yeah. Oh, yeah. This movie is fun. <laughs> I mean, I remember seeing this as a kid. A friend's parents was freaking out because some of the F-bombs were being dropped. And we were only like 20 <laughs> minutes into the movie. I think you eventually got turned off. Uh, how did you see this movie when you first? Was it, how did you come to this? Was it home video? Was it theater? How did you oh, home video. This? Yeah, I did not see this in theaters. I would have been too. Well, I would probably would have been just too young. <laughs> yeah, well, now you maybe sound like an asshole because uh, I did see this in a theater, uh, Christmas break mm-hmm. of 1991. I was actually in deep shit. I was actually grounded. Like, remember those progress reports <laughs> they used to send out for school? Yeah, those sure. Things? It was like mid-quarter report card type things. You know, I used to just burn the fucking things, if I'm being dead honest. I mean, that's why I'm doing podcasts now and not doing financial banking. <laughs> but um, you know, I used to just burn the damn things. I, I believe that's just, actually what they teach you in financial banking. Banking. Yeah, to just burn the receipts. Burn the receipts. Yeah, no, yeah. Probably, yeah, it probably was a great setup for a Wall Street career. And I, I just didn't burn that one particularly. I just like hit it somewhere. I don't know why in my you know 13-year-old mind to do that. And got caught and got grounded. But uh, even so, my old man wanted to go see Last Boy Scout. So uh, he was stuck watching me because I was home from Christmas break. So he had to take me and I got to go <laughs> see this fucking thing, uh, which was a great, uh, you know, great problem to have for me. Uh, being grounded and getting to see cool movies. So this was a very seminal movie in the fact that it was so large on the big screen. It has that Warner Brothers look. Oh, yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? That that 90s Warner I don't know if it's a certain filter they use or, or a bleaching process on their films. 
even Passenger 57 has that look. Mm -hmm. Some of the early Steven Seagal movies have a certain look that they look like they all came from the same world. I mean, I agree. I think it's a, a, it just really has to do with lighting, just the style of cinematography. It's very similar throughout all those. And even eventually, uh, you know, landing on uh, that, that Clint Eastwood style, which even today is still very reminiscent of these past productions like this. The cinematography here for a second. It's by Ward Russell. We do have an interview with Mr. Russell on our uh, web pages at moviemavericks.com. You can look at it there. He talks in depth about shooting this movie. He replaced Jeffrey L. Kimball on Days of Thunder, who was Tony Scott's normal cameraman. He did two movies with Scott. He did last or Days of Thunder and Boy Scout, and he was talking about the over-reliance on fog in this movie. Well, didn't he do Unstoppable as well? Uh, he didn't. He did Unstoppable, the Wesley Snipes version, not ah. the Dead Cell, Chris Pine version. Gotcha. Yeah. He also did Lawnmower Man 2, which... Hey, uh, there's one for Hey, you. there's one for the books, right? Hey. Yeah, big Matt Frewer fan. That's a good interview. Check it out on our webpage there. Getting back to the movie, this was supposed to be Bruce Willis's comeback film after the huge failure, uh, the hubris they showed on the set of Hudson Hawk and Bonfires of the Vanity. That's much documented. This was supposed to be his getting back into good graces movie. And this did okay at the box office. $59 million, although it was hampered, I think, with a Christmas release. It probably would have done better in the summertime. Uh, but, of course, Hudson Hawk was scheduled for that. They thought it was going to be a big hit. This was kind of the afterthought movie. And it adjusted it did about $125 million, but you'd expect it to have done mm -hmm. more with the talent that was attached to it. I would think so. I mean, Wayans at that point was, was pretty big, and Bruce Willis, of course, was huge. One thing I will say, I mean, you're talking about talent and acting and whatnot, is Bruce Willis not just the same guy in every movie? He, like, he's that wisecracking I mean, is this not is this not the same exact character as in the fifth element <laughs> you, you know what i like about the last boy scout though i don't know what it is but he's at, like the the perfect stage of baldness for me you know what i'm saying like in this movie <laughs> that is the true yeah. stage of baldness and in facial hair it like the ratio works out because in any other movie subsequently he just keeps getting closer to the, like eventually having to shave the head then he kind of refines mm -hmm. the look even in armageddon and whatnot it's just like in this movie it's classic because Die Hard 2, you're just like, oh man, what, you know, you're trying to, you're trying to save something that's dying there, bud. But in this <laughs> one, it worked out okay for me. I would say it's more iconic roles, and you wonder why they didn't go back and do a sequel. And then you hear about the troubles on production, which we alluded to. That being that Willis and Silver overtook uh, a lot of directing duties from Tony Scott, tried to reshoot the movie from under him. Um, DGA got involved at some point. It's rumored, at least. Which is something that happens a lot in Bruce Willis movies. Surprise! He takes over the production. Uh, he must be just even to this day. It's funny because the guy's never actually directed a movie. You know, you hear things that I'm sure Kevin Costner yeah. can be rather hard or Mel Gibson, but those are guys that have won Oscars for directing a movie. It's not like Bruce Willis has a pedigree for directing films yet knows how he wants to be shot, knows how he wants to be lit and is only mm -hmm. willing to do X amount of work. But will be in any movie if you just ask him <laughs> for yeah, a million dollars a day. <laughs> Um, now, Shane Black was paid $1.75 for this – that's million – for this script, the highest at the but time. And he could have fetched $2.5 million, they said. But he had some loyalty to Joel Silver who cast him in Predator for Lethal Weapon. There was some loyalty there. In Scott's case, the next movie he would go do is True Romance. And there is a scene in True Romance that is cast with an actor who looks a lot like Joel Silver playing a manic, ego-driven producer. What was his name? Lee? Yeah. Lee, was that his name? I know. Somebody is stealing from me. Yeah. yeah, clearly having some issues. The movie there that he was making, probably very similar to this, right? 
I gotta believe that was written in on purpose because if you look at the timeline of this, the shooting of Last Boy Scout was taking place as Revenge was tanking at the box office, and hmm. that Tarantino was writing True Romance as this was happening, and you know their conversations with Scott that could be true. To tell him about this stuff, so that's why he wrote that character into True Romance, and then cast him with an actor that looked even more so. So, a little bit of a backstory on that. Damon Wayans and Bruce Willis. You know, surprise, surprise, once again, like you said, did not get along on set and in fact went so far as to despise each other. And Damon went on Arsenio Hall. There's a clip out there on YouTube where uh, I didn't include it on this podcast. I actually should have where he claims that a squirrel ran into Bruce Willis's trailer <laughs> and was found fornicating with his hairpiece. Mm hmm. I, I do always find it interesting to to know that at some point there was an unwatchable version of this movie that that caused them to to bring in uh, Stuart Baird, you know, and uh, fix it. And I always want to see these unwatchable work prints, these things that they watch and they say, "Oh fuck," you know. <laughs> yeah, that audience is just just shit on with the scorecards, and they say, "Okay, this is going to retool this." Because how much different could it possibly be? Although, this yeah, is that's my question, right? For being a cut-up movie, this is before Tony Scott got into his Man of Fire um, routine and mm -hmm. overcut everything in a, in a sense. But this is still extremely choppy. Oh yeah, very, very, very choppy. I thought, especially in the in the sense that it uh, moves around a lot. There's a lot of locations on this movie. Yeah, I noticed that as I was getting there. I thought we were getting to the end of it, and I thought, oh no, they still got to go here, here, and then to the football. Yeah, they move around a lot on this guy. Let's take a quick listen to the trailer from 1991's Last Boy Scout. We'll come back and break down the story. This ain't no game, Flash. Joe Hellenbeck's a private detective who's run out of luck. If you touch me again, I'll kill you. <laughs> two for two. Told you. Jimmy Dix. I like Prince. Is an ex-quarterback who was thrown out of football. Another tragic tale of wasted youth. You're nobody. Shh. Don't tell anyone. They were trying to clean up their acts. You vacuum. I'll dust. When they got dragged into the dirty world of sports corruption. So you're gonna bribe some senators to legalize again. Legalize. Sports gambling. Now. Son, we're going to a ball game. They've got one shot. What am I gonna do? Point at the bad guys and shoot! To get the goods. Ah! On the bad guys. This once, I would like to hear you scream. Play some rap music. <laughs> Not a bad man. man. Take your best shot. If they don't kill each other first. That was a bomb? It had a hell of a factory recall. Bruce Willis, Damon Wayans. The last Boy Scout. Danger's my middle name. Mine's Cornelius. Don't tell anybody I'll kill you. All right, and we're back. And that's. I do love that trailer. That is one of the greatest, cheesiest trailers you'll ever see. Not only that, it's got uh, Don LaFontleroy. Uh, as the, I believe that's his name, as the classic screen, you know, the, this is in a world where, <laughs> you know, I love that, that voice right there just says to me, okay, 1980s, like this is, take this serious because all, everything depends on this fucking trailer. <laughs> you know, I just like, love everything the, is great. The football that explodes. 
the one-liners, the you know, the, the, the smashing of everything into each other. I mean, that's a beautifully tailored trailer. It's definitely a 1991 trailer. That's <laughs> yeah. for damn sure. What's with the fetish of having Bruce Willis in undershirts always? It's like a white tee or a fucking it's, white. I don't know. That, that's just his look. Yeah, is it? Yeah. Okay. I don't know why. He just has to look like a like a bum, I guess. I don't know why. It's like his everyman appeal because I just wear exactly. I, d- I don't logo. shave. Yeah. Um. And I'm, I'm going, like I'm going bald. I'm a drunk. <laughs> <laughs> I look like, I look like uh, the biggest weenie in the world, but I can beat up huge men. <laughs> yeah. I have no just considerable muscle mass, but it's yeah. all good. All right. Well, this uh, starts with direct uh, homage. As you heard coming into the podcast, Friday night's a great night for football, which at the time was a riff on Hank Williams Jr. Singing all my rowdy friends coming over tonight, which was the lead in for my night football for years. For those of you that don't know when, uh, the NFL didn't quite look like what it did today. I mean, in the late 80s, I think the NFL was going through a huge, huge resurgence in popularity, including into the early 90s uh, when this movie came out. Another reason I'm surprised this wasn't a bigger hit. You know, you mix Lethal Weapon and football, you figure this would be a massive success. But yeah. regardless, this is a, it starts with that great little homage there. And then really that opening sequence with Billy Cole getting the call, running down the field. I, 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 honestly, that could be in a Christopher Nolan movie nowadays. Maybe a product of its time. Um, I don't know. I kind of felt a little bit distant from it. Really, I'm surprised. That, that to me, yeah. that was the you know the Sid Field school of screenwriting of grab them up front with an opening scene, you know, mm-hmm. involve them right away, and it does that for me um, in a, in a classic formulaic you know screenplay. I think structure. it takes him a damn long time to get to the point where he shoots people and when he does it as well it's i don't know if you're it's an odd way to to welcome you to a a cynical dark world to do something that is so out of place you know a football player running shooting these people killing people right basically he's gone crazy but we don't know that right he's gotten a phone call he's you know weird things are happening they don't really play out and he decides to kill other people as well as take his own life which is the part that kind of goes really dark for me. And it kind of is a weird introduction to this movie because now the movie is, you know, popping jokes. Yeah, you're at Cleveland, dark Cleveland. And then the next shot you have, you're at sunny California, Los Angeles. And Bruce Willis is passed out in his car where three hoodlums are trying to steal his watch and throw a dead rodent on him. And right away, you know, they just they establish him as a lowlife. I mean, he's sleeping in the car. <laughs> He's but he's not. <laughs> but isn't that interesting as well? Like the like the backstory to him clearly is that he's not this guy um, that he that he's wanting everyone to perceive him as, right? Which is half the the time the reason why he's so cynical and so dark with his jokes and things because he wants to seem like an asshole, uh, even though he's not. The way this story portrays him in the opening, you know, living in his car, going to the office, his wife wanting nothing to do with him. And I love that the actress who plays the wife in this is the same actress that plays uh, Tila in Masters of the Universe opposite Dolph Lundgren. Did you catch that? I Okay. Yeah. No, you're not. A, oh, okay. Well, apparently we don't have the same love for Masters of the Universe. Yeah. That's, that's not exactly. That's not a selling point for me. The fact that he catches MacGyver's friend fucking his wife. <laughs> Right, is it not? Isn't that the, that's probably the most yeah, I know. That's probably the most unbelievable part of this entire movie. It's, it's the, the, he, boss, he, the boss he, from Time Cop. Yeah, right? When he opens that, that closet door and he's in, you're just like, really, that guy? 
<laughs> I wonder what, yeah, what she rates on his finger scale, you know. That's, uh, the thing is, the stars here are Willis and Damon Wayans, but you got to say Shane Black's script is also the unwritten star here, if you will, because he is the, the man behind all of it. And I feel like his mm-hmm. presence is in every scene of this movie. I mean, does it not feel like every character speaks the same? That they all have that cynical, blasé, uh, flippant kind of attitude with mm-hmm. one another? Yeah, definitely. Everyone does. Possibly my favorite scene in the entire movie is when he and Wayans go back to his house and meet his daughter, which is just a great moment um, in the movie because they're almost um, th- that entire scene, the way it plays out from beginning when they get to the house or actually when when they leave to go to the house all the way up to when he kicks Damon Wayans out of the house. That whole entire sequence is pretty damn amazing because they go through just so much bonding and so much learning about each other throughout that entire sequence. That is the linchpin of the film because right after that, the movie actually begins. If you look at it from story-wise, because he says, okay, we'll start tomorrow and then we'll go to my house. I want to see my family first. And they actually start their adventure of solving the mystery, if you will, uh, or the case mm-hmm. after that. I mean, they, they really get on it. But up to that point, it's the first half of the movie. In that sequence, he does. He goes from arguing with his daughter to being a fuck-up. And Daniel Harris, the little girl who played I used to, I used to love Daniel Harris. She was in the she's Halloween a movies. babe now, too. Uh, she looks great now. But she's a great little actress in this thing. Yes. I mean, she, she calls him a fuck-up. She says that with such intensity, and it's... it's you know, well, definitely, the whole thing is blocked very well too. That's that scene is directed. Yeah, exactly. Well. It reminded me of kind of like a hit girl type thing. You know, someone very young playing beyond their their age and doing it so well. Once again, she's written with a very cynical attitude, much like Bruce Willis. I mean, he even says to mm-hmm. her, "Your daughter's got your winning personality," which is a great line. Yeah. And then you know, the she's got some great one liners. <laughs> I, I love that when he gives his backstory. And the thing about Shane mm-hmm. Black characters, you go back to Lethal Weapon, Long Kiss Goodnight, or whatever you have it, mm-hmm. including this movie, he gives them great backstories. Uh, they have fully formed backstory so that when they do their sob story, you can understand some of the choices that they've made, including you know the Mel Gibson character. Lethal Weapon, the Danny Glover character, and mm-hmm. then here with Jimmy Dix, the Damon Wayans character, when he gives his, you know, reason, and, and I love the Alex, the astronaut, Alex, the accountant. Those are very nice touches that the script does. You know, the toast to his unborn child and the no, careers. Uh, that entire scene in the shower after Bruce Willis has knocked him down, he is explaining, you know, why he his life is in shambles. It's a great performance, I thought, from Wayans, and probably the best performance possibly in the entire movie. Um, and just there's so many touches in that scene that the blood just coming out of his mouth as he's sitting there yeah. uh, giving this thing. It's just a wonderful shot. There's a sequence. There's a few lines right before that happens when they're having the drink. And he looks at him and sees a picture of because the Boy Scout here is the Secret Service, right? He, that's the whole term, you know, right? Because he's the last Boy Scout because he was the last of the good Secret Service men or whatever, right? Is that what you got out of this? The Boy Scout? Um, I don't know if I got that out of it. But, yeah, I mean, that's the, the, the gist of it is that he's. He's basically said it was a jab at him, right? Because he's such a nice guy, such a good guy, but he's really he's really not, you know? Yeah. So. Um, but he's looking at the picture of him and Carter and he says, hey, is that like one of those cardboard cutouts like they had in Venice Beach? And he says, mm-hmm. no. And I swear to you, this is so – it's either Shane Black channeling Tarantino and Tarantino being influenced or, or vice versa. But there's a very mm-hmm. Tarantino-esque exchange there where he says to him – uh, he says, I had one where I took a picture with John Johnson. And he says, oh, do you still have the picture? He goes, no, I threw it away. That little throwaway aside with a pop cultural reference is so Tarantino. And it's <laughs> – you, you feel me though? It's like it's a weird little like Shane Blackism, Tarantino-like thing that uh, just caught my attention that I would never noticed any other time before I watched this movie. And I've seen this movie a lot of times. Hmm. Very, very odd. Um, yeah. I don't know. Great, great dialogue. Um that's what Shane Black really excels at, you know. I mean, the action's 
you know, fine and all, but I don't know. Here and there, it felt like a, b- a bit of injection, if you know what I mean. The uh, especially the scene where they get, where they he goes into uh, to get into the second car of um, his girlfriend, yeah. Damon Wayans, and then those guys show up and then they blow they up the car. Doesn't that just seem so inserted? And they roll down the hill and stuff. Yeah, that was just like, why is that in here? They needed a trailer shot, which they obviously use because we saw that. Um, and, and even in getting to that, it's nice to see them using car phones and tapes. I mean, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah, I mean the when he, the fast forward eats the tape moment is just is a classic. Fast forward eats the fucking fast tape. fast forward eats the tape. Not only that, how many snaps were good in this? You know what I mean? I got a lot of classic lines in the schoolyard from this movie. Yeah. <laughs> I got a lot of good. Distances. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, a lot of good shit. Um, this was a classic, and then Warner Brothers, I, I. I I don't think ever employed Bruce Willis again after the, you know, the tantrums he had on this movie, mm-hmm. which is a shame because it, it all came together so nicely here. <laughs> <laughs> they really could add something here. And I like Tyler Negrone as Milo, the bad guy who uh, refuses to call people by their shortened version of their name, calls him William and Joseph. Uh, I, I love that James. <laughs> um, I, I love that kind of touch for a bad guy. It's another nice Shane Black touch. He gives the, the characters, especially in the sequence when he, he says, turn around. He, he says, why? You're the bad guy. And I'm the good guy. Right. You know what I mean? It's like Bruce Willis, once again, is standing above the action and commenting to us like he's too fucking tired to even go through the motions of it. Like we are as audience members in a lot of formulaic ways. Yeah. Um, now, when they get to the this, this shootout with the kid in the hand puppet, that was a big scene when we were younger. Because of the violence and the child, mm-hmm. you remember that whole uproar about that? Yeah, it, it, it's harmless nowadays. I don't see it's, a fucking. Uh, it's so, it's so right. Paid, you know. Yeah, I know. I, I agree as well. But still, you, you can imagine at the time. Um, I mean, just her involvement there. But we went through this uh, as I as said already with uh, Chloe Grace Moretz as Hit Girl. You know, we we lived through a similar thing where. Uh, uh, again, everyone was kind of up in arms in it, and I thought that, that I, I just disagree that kids can't be around violence and and you know they're smart enough, certainly, right? Yeah, to be, no, to be cursing and things. I don't. What's wrong with that? It didn't bother me in this movie at all. No, and, uh, I like I had said, it is a dark film when the main character holds a gun to his daughter's head for a throwaway sequence. You know, uh, but which it was played then for good laughs with that Rick Dukeman who came on. He's yeah. <laughs> He used to make all sorts of appearances. Good God! I used to like Duke of Um, yeah, uh, but yeah, but I mean that—that's not a tense moment, right? When he puts the gun to her head, it's not even played for a tense moment. No, but if they did that now, there'd be a fucking riot in the theater. Movie. If you do that now, the movie's automatically rated R, even for that sequ- same exact sequence. They should do that, and then have the kids smoking, and cursing. And playing with guns. We gotta love Sheldon Marcone, the owner of the LA Stallions in this movie, because he is uh, Cordell Stewart's boss, or Cordell Stewart, Cordell Walker's <laughs> boss. Cordell Stewart's boss was the owner of the Pittsburgh Steelers, but Cordell Walker's boss was Noble Willingham, who played Sheldon Marcone in this movie. And uh, yeah, that's a Walker, Texas Ranger reference, <laughs> or an Ace Ventura reference. I can't tell which one. Oh, Find God. Snowflake. Find Snowflake, Ray Finkel. Um, this movie, though, the last sequence at the football stadium. When he throws the football and the goddamn sniper. <laughs> I mean, the best part is that this yeah. movie just continues to get more outlandish as it goes along. I mean, I thought when 
the fucking car lands in the pool. Like, oh my god, uh-huh. what's gonna top that? And then I love when uh, Milo calls him and he goes, "Where are you calling from? The bottom of the yeah, pool? the bottom of the pool." <laughs> I was like, "Damn, that's ballsy, man." You know, <laughs> I love that. Uh, it, it, all that kind of shit. But do you find that this movie has too much going on? That they could have cut out that uh, that whole sequence in the forest or the car chase in freeway oh, shootout after yes. that? Yeah, I know. That's why this movie, as I said, has a shitload of um, of sets, you know, just a piece of just going from this place to this place to this place to this place to this place. It's like and they know um, right where they're going, you know, I mean, when they go and stop the um, the limousine. Right. And, you know, that they still have to go to the damn Go to the game still. The game still. I mean, that, that's the whole entire movie is that they're just making stops along the way to get to. And you know that that, you know, really because of the beginning of the movie, you know that they're going to wind up at the football game. And so they're just the waiting time, for that. How many sequences are there where bad guys are over explaining the plot? Like, I know you were going to do this, but I was smarter than you because this I did one, this. Yeah. And, and that really could have been cut out of this. There's a couple <laughs> of sequences like that. The James Bond scenario, if you will, you know, with the over explaining bad guy. I didn't. I, I'm not a real fan of that entire pool scene um, with him swimming and then getting out and giving a long speech and everything because he's not really very menacing. And he seems very like. Oh, let me tell you about some stuff that's going on, you know, we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And they had like this conversation. It's like, and then we're going to frame you. And it's like, oh, okay. But so this all comes down to sports fuck? corruption. I mean, this movie is about a stripper, <laughs> Halle Berry, who is fucking the owner of the team, which is improbable as shit. Cause Jerry Jones would never risk his career and his money for, I, fuck a, I uh, think they, they set that up pretty, pretty you know, I mean, she, he could, would, would do that. I you know? mean, the, the, Barry, the beginning, yeah. <laughs> it's the beginning is, is, you know, his, his wife's cheating. So here you have more, more cheating thing. It's kind of set up. All right. Well, I'll give you that pass. And then, uh, you know, but the plot here that is that she gets dirt on him that he is going, you know, he's bribing senators. So she thinks that presenting this information is going to get Jimmy. Back I didn't understand lineup. that. Yeah. How dumb is she? I mean, does she think that NFL commissioners are going to agree to this? I mean, the team owner. Well, what are they going to do? A guy who's been Pete Rose out of a, out of the game. Yeah, but I mean, they have the technology. They're going to rebuild him. I don't understand. He's fucked, right? <laughs> I thought that was like that's one of the mean, big holes in this movie, my man. That's one of the big plot holes there. Um, but I, I like that it's a it's a Chinatown wannabe in that it's uh it's taking. It's taking something and adding, you know, what corruption angle can we, what world can we present and what corruption angle can we present in that world? And the best they can find is that the mob, I love when he tells him, you know, yeah. who just send the tape to the cops? And he goes, no, the mob. Because that's, oh shit, you know, they're, they're, you know that's yeah. the, the more of a threat is the fucking mob. That was mob. a good, uh, yeah. That's a nice That twist. was good. I mean, in the end, you know, as with most private eye movies, you know, ultimately the, uh, the, the thing that's playing out, whatever it is, really doesn't matter. Right, because it's all the characters uh, that you meet along the way, and really the journey to get to the end. Yeah, it's the it's the deviations and the attitude of people that you meet. I would say in this one, and there, like, I think the strongest sequence in this movie though is that center sequence at the house, which is a very uh, extended sequence, and I love that they have Lethal Weapon playing in the background. In the Jill Silver <laughs> movie on that. I love when movie people in movies are watching movies yeah. I like. You know. <laughs> Let's take a quick break and listen to Siskel and Ebert's initial review of Last Boy Scout upon its release. And we'll come back with our thoughts on what they had to say. I'm Gene Siskel of the Chicago Tribune. And I'm Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times. 
Our first movie is named The Last Boy Scout, and this is one of those movies that inspires actually a very uneasy mix of feelings. On the one hand, it is well made. On the other hand, it's amazingly violent and obscene. The movie stars Bruce Willis as a former Secret Serviceman who has now been reduced to acting as a bodyguard for a stripper, and he's not even very good at that since she's killed by a car bomb. The stripper's boyfriend, played by Damon Wayans, is a disgraced former pro football player who was thrown out of the league for gambling. Looks like our evidence got blown up. I think we might have to get some more. He's won't let go, huh? You're like a dog with a frisbee. My girl's dead. The guys that did it up at Spago's eating chicken Marcella. If Wayans seems sort of blasé there about his girlfriend who has just been killed, that's because this movie is hostile toward women from beginning to end. The only great relationships here are between buddies like these two. $650? Yeah. They're pants. Yeah. You wear them? Yes. Then I have like a TV in them or something? Nope. line basically involves the nine lives of these guys who are forever talking themselves out of tight spots as they uncover a plot to legalize gambling and pro football. Slow and easy. Jake. You dumb bastard, you're gonna pay for that. Jake, open a trunk. Bruce Willis has become a specialist in big-budget special effects movies like the Die Hard Pictures and Hudson Hawk, and there's no shortage of expensive stunts in The Last Boy Scout. As I said before, this is a well-made action thriller, and it does indeed deliver the goods but it also reaches some new lows in the unremitting, repetitive vileness of its language. And I was also rather disturbed by the character of the hero's 13-year-old daughter, played by Danielle Harris, who has a real eye-opening scene in which she and her father see which one knows the most dirty words. Later, she's kidnapped by the bad guys and used as a hostage. When RoboCop 2 came out, we were both disturbed by the use of a foul-mouthed little boy, but that movie was nothing compared to this one. I give The Last Boy Scout thumbs up for technique and basic action skill. It does work, but as a sign of the decay of public standards, it's pretty bad news. Well, it is, it's, it is mean. There's, there's a meanness to it. Um, I think Bruce Willis wants to play a, a variation of his diehard character, but the diehard guy is an upbeat kind of guy, and yeah. an innocent, sunny kind of guy who's thrown in this maelstrom of, of violence around him. Here it's participatory in some way. He's depressed. Mm -hmm. uh, the football player is angry and bitter. Mm -hmm. And as they go through these things, that angry and bitter tone just colors all of the stuff. In yeah. addition, this script is well known in Hollywood for having cost a ton of dough, setting a record at the time. There are some very funny jokes in the picture, but they occur at a sort of a metronome level so that it's set up, set up, joke, set up, set up, yeah. joke. And that, that pattern gets a little tiring after a while. You know, it's amazing that in today's world, people would pay, I think, what was it, a million and a half, two million dollars, something Between like that. Right. Yeah. For these one-liners, which are basically the kind, same kinds of things that are turned out for sitcoms, because the plot itself is lethal weapon. Right. They, you know, the two cops, their relationship, he isn't a cop, but nevertheless, the two guys, Buddies. their relationship, the guy on the hill, it's right out of Lethal Weapon Part 2. This is not a very original screenplay. And yet, you know, 
how, how do you review this, Gene? Well, how did you feel? I sat there I in the audience. It was working for the audience. They enjoyed it. Well, I'm, I'm not going to review the. I'm not going to review the audience. It's very simple. My test is always, what would I say to a good friend? And my, my answer was that there's. Some, it's what I've been saying since I saw the picture. Yeah. Of friends, some cute lines, some good stunts, but so uh, nothing you, special. Not so what? Thumbs up or not? Down. All right. So we're back, and obviously this is a strange hmm. one to call because. Ebert gave this three stars in his written review, but it really is harsh on it, calling it misogynistic and uh, quite quite cruel, but he gives it points for its technical craftsmanship. And he's incorrect on, on the facts of what happened in the movie. Yes, I agree. Um, we'll explain that to our listeners. Go ahead. We have to agree, because he, he claims that uh, Halle Berry's character was killed by an explosion and by her car being ex- blown up. No, she was shot down. She Which done. is not true, yeah. yeah. So it makes you wonder. It makes you wonder if you even get like, but then again, does he check out mentally in some of these movies or what? But um, he, I don't think it's, I mean, it's, it's got definitely, I mean, Shane Black has admitted, first of all, that he was going through a divorce or a bad breakup when he wrote this. And he was very, it's uh, very dark on, for, on women. Against women. Yeah. yeah he's admitted that it, it, it's a very much a bromance movie. It's set in the mind of a 13 year old. And if you will, where girls still have goodies and are, you know, mm-hmm. are about to ruin your relationship with a good buddy. Having said that, it is what it is, and that's you know the overbearing macho nature of the world that they're trying to present. It it's, almost, but it's it's you know as I would say you know, and I'm surprised that neither Cisco nor Ebert said anything about this. Is it's hyper aware of that at least to me, I thought it knew that it was being violent. It knew when it was being crude and and crass towards. Uh, you know, to anyone that that you know wasn't Damon Wayans or Bruce Willis, right? I think the sequence where the wife says, "You know, tell me I'm a lying bitch, spit in my face," mm-hmm. to have because Bruce Willis wasn't saying that, and she's but telling that him end, he should say that. Oh come on, um, that ending when he fucking tells her. Uh, right, I know. Uh, and the words. way he says it, yeah, it's I know. so it's great. But that's kind of the whole. I don't know. Isn't that the whole point of the whole entire movie in that sense that he's constantly saying these things like that, but it's not really him, right? He's just being, he's just playing a character, I guess, or he's, he's just wanting people to hate him, you know? Well, yeah, he's out, he's avenging the death of the guy who was fucking his wife. I mean, like Damon Wayne's breaks it down for him and says (laughs) quite succinctly in the movie is really screwed up what we're doing. If you think about it. Um, But I, I just don't, I think, Ebert was a little too sensitive on this one. It, it clearly mm-hmm. is a, a cold movie in that um, even Damon Wayans is saying this. Though, I want to meet the bitch that fucked you up because, you know, he's yeah. saying these things that like, he, he's acknowledging that Bruce Willis is very um, guarded and cold and harsh towards people. And the women that are presented in this movie are strippers and cheating and things like that. So their arguments for – um, well, what he's saying. There's but really if, not a lot it, of women in the movie either. Right, but it, <laughs> but if you're if you're also taking jabs at yourself, and it's damn near a self parody. Mm-hmm. You know, it, this movie skirts in the line of parody on a lot of occasions. So, it's a throwaway entertainment. I mean, so I, I don't know. Yeah, that's, that's the way I saw it as well. You know, just a throwaway something that's smarter than it should be. A little bit of a uh, you know commentary on action movies at the time. And shot in, uh, you know, a very dated kind of a way. So I, I think it stands as, as kind of an interesting movie to, to go back and look at. Yeah, I'm glad we went back and looked at this because I hadn't seen it in, man, I, I got to say, honestly, 15 years. And from what I remember, I used to think of it as a guilty pleasure. But it's more than a guilty pleasure. It, it's, it's the Bruce Willis film that I feel is his best movie outside of the Die Hard movies. You know, if I had to look... <laughs> It's better than Die Hard 2, man. Uh, it is. And I used to think the Die Hard 2 was – I had this on a videotape 
with Die Hard 1, Last Boy Scout, and then Die Hard 2, all taped off HBO back in the day. Like shitty HBO <laughs> feeds, you know? Yeah. Like with, with fucking yeah. tracking issues and everything. I mean, you got three movies on there. That's extended play, my friend. Oh, that's, that, that's, that's a, that's, that's a good-looking movie. Oh, yeah, that's, that's not HD quality. I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> phone looks much better. Um, but, you know, I was glad to have these things. They were gems, you know? They were you know, like things that were precious to you. And you think back... And now with Wikipedia and all the stuff that's on the internet, the internet, you can find out what actually went into it. But when I just had a video cassette of this thing, and right, um, yeah. it just—it was almost magical in a sense. It was, you know, Bruce Willis. It just existed cool. on its own. <laughs> yeah, I, I, but think about the other Bruce Willis movies that were out at this mm-hmm. period. He was trying to expand with Bonfires and Hudson Hawks sucked. Striking mm-hmm. Distance sucked. I mean, this was a bad era for him going into like really the mid '90s until he was yeah, went back true. to Die Hard. Went through a bad, bad downfall after this. Really, kind of. Should have humbled him, but apparently didn't, because as Stallone said, can't be greedy and lazy. <laughs> or you end up in the directed DVD bin. <laughs> well, that's where they all seem to end up anyway, so... Isn't that amazing? We're going to have to do a list one I've day. I've never seen a fucking one of them. I'm just waiting for Cruz. He's, he's coming for him. Oh, don't say that. Keanu Reeves has already done it. Yeah, I know. Nick Cage. I mean, everyone... It's Vaughn's got one coming next. Yeah. Yeah, so they're all dipping in the DVD. It's happening to everybody. <sighs> Oof. Well, that's going to wrap up our retro episode for The Last Boy Scout. We want to thank you all for joining us on this look back to the Shane Black classic, the Bruce Willis iconic (laughs) character of Joe Hollenbeck. People have said over the years, why hasn't there been a sequel? And there's simply one answer. I guess Bruce Willis is a dick. This is prime for, uh, um, you know, sequels, though, I think, Um, at least to me, I I would you I would have watched a couple more of these. Absolutely. I think this was ready for it, but because of the production troubles, uh, and it I, never happened. I mean, Willis and, and Damon uh, work really good together, surprisingly. Yeah, despite what happened off screen, their performance, they were yeah. professional on screen and actually developed the chemistry. Maybe it was because of uh, the rocky nature of their, their relationship. But as, as an on screen duo go, he clicks here with, with Damon better than most of his co stars, I'd say, outside of Samuel L. Jackson in, in mm-hmm. uh, Die Hard 5 but, or 3. But, you know, as good as Seagal and Keenan. Oh, you don't talk <laughs> shit about the Glimmer Man, my man. I love the Glimmer Man, so I, I won't be this, talking shit about it, but yeah. I mean, since we're on the topic of it, uh, <laughs> since, you're, since you're cracking wise on your man Keenan uh, and Mr. Buddha himself, Seagal, what other Damon Wayne movies were ever worth a shit? I know that that is the the, the question, you know, because this was this proves to me that he could have been in actual real movies and. You know, and action movies and stuff, but why? You know, where where are the rest of them? <laughs> I give him a pass for the Great White Hype. I give him a pass for Bulletproof, and I give him a half of a pass for Major Pain. Everything Where's... else can be burnt. Yeah. Remember Celtic Pride? Horrible. Yeah, blank that did man. Not pan, so. Fucking Blank Man. Remember that thing? Blank Man. Mo Money. Mo Money's unwatchable. Go back and try to watch Mo Money. <laughs> Fucking unwatchable. Honestly. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I saw he a stand-up comedy routine with him in about 1997. He was playing at a, a local place. You know the place. I, I've moved on there. And um, I remember him saying, yeah, I'm back to doing stand-up because the movie career wasn't shit. <laughs> <laughs> and it was very, very true. Now his son's got a career, so but yeah. we digress, of course. But once again, we want to thank you all for joining us on podcast. You can get all of our old podcasts or back podcasts, I should say. They never get old. Over at MovieMavericks.com, iTunes, Stitcher, TalkShoe, and multiple podcast outlets. Thanks again for joining us. We'll be back next week with a regular podcast, episode 299, coming at you guys. 
Speaking for Trevor Anderson, I'm Jason Rugard, and we are the Movie Mavericks. <laughs>